Before we dive into our study, I kind of have to warn you up front that thematically, as far as the themes of this morning's message, we're going to be all over the place. Like, we're going to be all over the map. Um, the rest of chapter 8 in Genesis into about halfway through chapter 9, like, we're going to look at a lot of different topics. I mean, it's kind of like buckshot. I mean, we're going to hit all kinds of things. Let me just kind of whet your appetite. This morning, these are the things we'll be discussing. You ready for it? We're going to talk about the new birth and its results. We're going to talk about baptism, the importance of waiting on the Lord before we act, offerings to God, weather cycles and seasons, eating meat, and the controversy of blood. We're going to talk about the death penalty, capital punishment, and we're going to talk about the rainbow as a sign of God's covenant. All of this in about the span of a chapter we're going to get to, we're going to dive into, but just kind of want to let you know that thematically uh, we're going to be all over the place. Now, the eighth chapter of Genesis, it opens with a most glorious statement. I mean, it's something that over the weeks I've just been chewing on. It's just ministered to me in an incredible way. The, the chapter opens, then God remembered Noah. While God's focus had been on cleansing the world of its wickedness and its perversity, this declaration, how chapter 8 opens, it marks an important transition in this story of the flood. Now that the old world had been laid asunder and divine judgment administered, this phrase, this cool phrase, then God remembered Noah, it's significant. It's significant because it emphasizes the fact that now God's sole focus centers upon a new world and a new man he's about to bring forth. Whereas originally, as the book opened in the beginning, God created all things by speaking them into existence. But it's now from the position of death, the world destroyed, that God initiates a new work of what you might consider recreation. Not only would the waters, as we get into chapter 8, begin to decrease, but new life would start to grow on what had been desolated by sin. Honestly, could you have a better picture of the gospel of God's grace? The old man of sin being laid to rest through death. The death of whom? the death of Jesus, when the righteous demands of God's judgment for sin were satisfied, this old man, dead, or woman, dead, now rises anew, resurrected to life, cleansed from all unrighteousness. Never forget, the new life that you've been given in Christ can only come after your old life of sin was judged on the cross. From death, we see what? Springing life. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this. He says, Do you not know that as many as us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death 
that just as Christ was then raised from the dead by the glory of God, even so we also walk now in newness of life. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? This world of sin, this world of wickedness, experiencing the judgment of God for then what to result? New life springing forth. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture. To this point, C.H. McIntosh writes, quote, it is interesting to look at the entire subject of the ark and deluge in connection with that most important and deeply significant ordinance of baptism. A truly baptized person is one who has passed from the old world into the new, in spirit and principle and by faith. The water rolls over his person, signifying that his old man is buried, that his place in nature is ignored, that his old nature is entirely set aside, in short, that he is a dead man. When he is plunged beneath the water, expression is given to the fact that his name, place, and existence and nature are put out of sight, that the flesh, with all that retained thereto its sins, its iniquities, its liabilities, are buried in the grave of Christ. It can never come into God's sight again. Baptism. What a glorious picture. The earth, in a sense, being baptized by this flood. But then God remembered Noah. Two weeks ago, we noted that this word remembered, it's an anthropomorphic Hebrewism. God is God. He's not us. Meaning that when we're examining things of God, we're trying to describe them from our limited, earthly, finite perspective. Some things get lost in translation. We do our best. So God remembered. What did that mean? The word remembered, it was designed to communicate the idea, not that God, had, that God had forgotten, only to now remember, but that instead he's now, after destroying the earth with this flood, destroying wickedness, judging sin, that now God is turning his attention from judgment onto Noah, his family, and those in the ark. I find this concept. This concept of God remembering and therefore, to a degree, forgetting. Incredibly powerful. And not just incredibly powerful, I find it so, so relevant concerning your life. What does God remember about you? On the flip side, what does he forget? I hope you understand this morning that God doesn't remember your former screw-ups your former sins, nor does he recognize your current ones. If you're bought by the blood of Christ, I hope you know that. He doesn't remember your former sins, nor does he recognize your current ones. In the face of your misdeeds and your shortcomings, God remembers but one thing. He forgets your sins, but this is what he remembers, that you have been bought by the precious blood of his son, Jesus that has not only justified you, but has made you permanently righteous before the throne of God. What grace that when you mess up, God remembers Jesus. I'm going to say that again because I think it's powerful. When you mess up, God forgets that, but what does he remember? He remembers the death of his son Jesus. This week, 
Those are the things God remembers and that he forgets. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, the Lord says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, he removed our sins from us. If it had been north and south, well, you can get to the north, right? Or you can get to the south. It's quite a journey, but you can, you can arrive at the destination. You go west, you'll go west, you'll go west, you'll go west. I don't know if you know this, but the earth is a circle. It's a sphere. And so if you start one direction going west, you'll keep going and going and going. Last night, Quincy and I were practicing our, our super-duper baseball catches. And uh, so, you know, and this is all imaginary, pretend. So, so I'd be like, hey, Quincy. And he'd be like, Ka-ka! And then he'd be like, behind the back. Ka-ka! And we were just doing this for, for like an hour. And finally, I was like, I wonder if he's going to get this. And I was like, all right, son, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to throw it super fast that way. But you need to be prepared because it's going to come that way. He looked at me. So I threw it, and he was like, what, Dad? I was like, the, the earth is a circle. I'm going to throw it around the earth because this is all pretend. That concept ended up being lost on a four-year-old. I thought it was pretty clever. <laughs> amazing, amazing that God, there are things he remembers, but what is it? the love of his son towards you. And there's a a mountain of things he forgets. I don't get how all that works. How can God forget something and how can he remember it? He's all-knowing, right? But this is what he told us. And he used these words so that we would understand that there's something that takes place here. It's of critical importance, friend, Christian, brother, sister. Oh, it's so important. That you remember what it is God remembers. How sad it is when we as Christians allow ourselves to get bogged down, discouraged, depressed with things that God has already forgotten. Like really, how silly is that? There is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those in Christ Jesus, why is it that any of us should walk around defeated, carrying things of the past, former things that God doesn't remember? Philippians 3, verses 13 through 14, brethren, Paul writes, who, by the way, had quite a checkered past, right? He says, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing. I do. Forgetting those things which are behind. I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. He says, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, chapter 8, the book of Genesis, beginning with verse 13. It came to pass in the 600 and first year. In the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. 
And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds, cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife, sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Now, if you take into consideration the date provided in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, as to when Noah and this crew entered the ark, with now the date provided here in verse 13, Noah didn't spend 40 days and 40 nights in the ark. In totality, they spent 377 days in the ark. That's, that's nuts. If you want to talk about some cabin fever. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about the way that chapter 8 unfolds is that even though Noah knew that it was okay to leave the ark, and just as a quick recap, in the earlier verses of this chapter, Noah runs a series of experiments, right? The ark has settled on Mount Ararat, but he's wanting to know if it's safe to leave the ark. And so he sends out a raven, an unclean animal. A raven is carnivorous. It, it eats flesh. And that raven goes out, finds things to eat because it doesn't re-enter the ark. It doesn't need food from the ark, but it has no place to land itself permanently. So it comes back, just perched up. Kind of gives... Noah, an idea that there's a lot of dead things all over the place, but still not a good place for this bird to nest. So then Noah sends out a dove. And we're told the dove goes to and fro. A clean animal only eats vegetation. It can't find food, so it comes back to the ark. Noah takes it back in, keeps sending it out, keeps coming back, until ultimately it brings back this olive leaf. Interesting, right? This new creation taking place, this new life. What does the dove bring back? By the way, the dove being this picture of, of the Holy Spirit. Olive, an olive leaf, also being a picture of the Holy Spirit. What brings new life into you? It's nothing but the Holy Spirit. So this dove comes in, it's got green vegetation. At some point, the dove no longer returns. It lets no one know at that point that it would be safe to leave the ark. Now, but this is what blows me away. Noah, when all human logic said it was okay to leave the ark, does he leave the ark? He's been in the ark like three, like a whole year. It's safe to go. It's safe to move. It's safe to leave. All human logic saying we can open the door. Let's get out. Yet Noah doesn't do anything, does he? He waits. And who does he wait on? He waits on word from the very one that put him in the ark to begin with. You called me to the ark. You told me to build the ark. I got in the ark, Lord. And then you're the one that closed the door. So when it's time for us to leave, I'm going to also trust you'll be the one to say go and you'll open the door. Noah, in this moment, all logic said go. It's fine. It's good. But he waited on who? On the word of God to say he could go. You know, it's been said, the right thing done at the wrong time 
ends up being the wrong thing. Like this idea of waiting patiently on the Lord while resisting the tendency to act impulsively. That concept weaves itself throughout the entirety of Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalms 27 verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 103, 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord get screwed over in the process? No. Just making sure you're with me. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who do what? Act impulsively? Rashly? No. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Friend, whether it be buying a home, selling a home, changing jobs, asking your boyfriend or girlfriend to, to marry you, which, by the way, if you're going to ask your boyfriend to marry you, he's not the guy you should marry. Whether it be life decisions, big life decisions, starting a family, changing careers. Let me just give you some, some good advice, some Noah advice. Don't act. Don't do anything until God tells you. Like, like, just wait. Wait until the Lord tells you to move, to act. No decision in my life that I engaged uh, quickly without waiting ever ended well. Lord, I got this one. It never played out right. Wait. It's better to wait than do the wrong thing. Now, now the question, okay, Zach, well, how do, how do I know when the Lord wants me to act? Like, how do I know when it's time to move, when it's time to go? Like, how, how do I feel that? Well, it's simple. One word. Peace. I have found over the years when I'm inclined to ask that question, when does the Lord want me to act? It's often a tell that I've yet to receive God's peace, or I wouldn't even be asking the question. Trust me. The Holy Spirit, we're told that he provides a peace that will surpass our understanding. It's a peace that sits in our soul where you know it's the right time. If you don't know it's the right time, you don't have that peace. By the very nature of asking the question. But when the Lord does then give you that peace, it's time to move. It's time to go. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. We're told, so Noah went out. His sons, his wife, sons' wives, every animal, the birds, they all leave the ark. Imagine what type of day that was. God finally said it was time. The door opens 
And man, I can imagine it was a stampede. It was time to get out. But think about the world. Aside from all of the the scientific geological changes that would have occurred because of a global event like a flood, walking out of that boat onto this new world, this new existence, it had to have been, pardon the word, but gnarly. They were, these eight people, the only human beings alive. It was the day after the apocalypse. You know, it's not an accident that there were a grand total of of eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives. This is significant because the number eight in biblical numerology is, is the number of new beginnings. A new beginning. Well, God as we'll see, was going to give them several important instructions. Don't overlook the first command that he gave. He gave, interesting, the same command he initially gave Adam. Original creation, he made man, he made the woman. He said what? Be fruitful and multiply. Now he's destroyed the world of wickedness. There's a new creation process taking place. The first instruction to Noah and his family were what? Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Aside from the obvious practicalities of this command, repopulating the earth, carrying forth on this concept of all of these things being a picture of our new birth, I want to point out that this command given to Noah and his family is the same command given to every Christian who's been born again. I hope you know right off the bat that we as Christians are called to be fruitful, to be fruitful. This English word is actually one Hebrew word, para, meaning to bear fruit. Understand, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness, much different than a work. A work, something you engage in, a fruit is something that's produced. It's, it's a product. It's not something you engage in, it's something you yield. It's not something you do, it's something that's manifested. You know, you can try your best to be fruitful, but without a supernatural work of God, the best that you can muster is this, barrenness. It's a supernatural work. The fact that you've got fruit that appears on a tree, people can say that's the natural process. I find it radical and supernatural that such a thing could grow from like that whole process. Like it's mind-blowing when you look into the science behind it. It's a miracle. I can work hard. I gotta be tactful here. I can work hard along with my spouse to create offspring. That was pretty tactful, I'll admit. That was pretty G-rated. We can work hard on that. But ultimately, when that happens, like, that's a miracle. Like, like who, when their baby goes, <laughs> it's, it's moronic when the dad's like, I made that. No, you didn't. You had two minutes of pleasure. That's about all you contributed to that. Like you did very, very, as a matter of fact, like it's like the minimum, the minimum. 
she definitely carried a lot of the process. But still, but still, man, when you see that happen, you're just like, that's the most incredible, miraculous thing I've ever seen. Like birth. I didn't do that. She might have pushed that out, but she, God made that. Like this is what this idea of being fruitful means. Like we don't do it. We don't work hard. Like you never walk by a vineyard and see the little grapes like hanging on the vine. I really want to be a grape. Like it's just, it's just stupid to think about that. Like all a grape has to do to be a grape is hang out on a vine. Right? It's a natural process. And in the spiritual world, it's a spirit natural process. You're to be fruitful. That's not a work you do. It's a work you allow to happen by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 through 25, we're told the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in your life, in your heart. This is what it yields. These are the, the fruit. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If you have a self-control problem or a gentleness problem, if you lack joy or you're not very kind, that's not something you can do to rem- like. There, there's not You can't remedy that. Like we live in a world that wants to give you 12 steps to being kind. You need more of the Holy Spirit, more dependency on the Holy Spirit, more resilience in the Holy Spirit, less of you and more of him. This listed this description, love, joy, peace, it's not really a description of you. It's a description of Jesus manifesting through you. We're also called as Christians Yes, be fruitful, but, but what? Multiply. Multiply. Once again, the English phrase in the Hebrew is rabah. It means to increase, to become many. While fruitfulness is only the result of a supernatural work in our lives, this idea of multiplying is something we're actually to be engaged in, to multiply. As a Christian, Jesus gave every single one of us the same commission. Matthew 28, go into the world, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to deserve, observe all things that I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Spiritually speaking, there's a truth that healthy sheep reproduce. Healthy sheep reproduce. Can I ask you this morning, When was the last time you multiplied? When was the last time you shared your faith or told your story? When was the last time that you prayed for someone? Where you saw a coworker having a terrible day and you just leaned over the cubicle and said, do you mind if I pray pray for you? 
Like, when was the last time that you gave a friend a Bible or invited them to church? Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Notice, Noah built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings, catch this out, as a response to God's grace and goodness and not as a way to curry the favor of God. Understand, there was no law that existed that demanded such an offering be made of Noah. And nowhere in the text are we told God gave Noah this directive. This action, it appears, was something that naturally manifested out of what? Out of a thankful and grateful heart that he and his family had been spared. Like what's amazing about this is that God's favor... God's favor, unmerited favor, motivated Noah's offering. It wasn't that Noah's offering was to motivate God's favor. Noah wasn't making an offering to God so he could be saved. He was making this offering because he had already been saved. Like consider, if you go back to chapter 6, Noah had already, before any of this had happened, been deemed by God as being righteous and perfect in his generation. It's really pretty bad. Understand, Noah's offering here, it demonstrated faith. In God's original promise of a Savior, we find back in Genesis 3, verse 15. Though the world had been judged, Noah recognized God still had a plan. And that plan was in motion. As God illustrated to Adam and Eve in the garden, when God spilt blood to make an effective covering for their sin, so now in this new world, what does Noah do? He also offers an offering. He spills blood. Noah was recognizing that the ultimate permanent salvation of man would only be possible through the spilt blood of an innocent offering made for sin. You know, we're approaching this entire book as the genesis of grace. This was an offering motivated by what? By law? No, by God's grace. We're told as a result, notice, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Now, there have been many to make the argument that this verse justifies the notion that God is a huge fan of Southern barbecue. But, but, keep in mind that we have here another anthropomorphism. Why? God can't smell in the way that we do. Like the idea behind this phrase was to communicate that Noah's offering here in response to God's grace and motivated, motivated by his faith in a coming Savior. 
This offering, as a response of God's, it was something that God delighted in. Today, you should always remember that your offering, your offering of praise or giving or your time or service should never intend to get something from God. Don't volunteer for the nursery ministry to get something from God. Matter of fact, all he's going to give you is dirty diapers. This is the truth. But instead, your desire to serve, to give, to make an offering, a sacrifice, should be a motivation of all that God has given you. Notice, while God concedes that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, God does make a promise to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. With one caveat. Look at it. He says, I'll never again destroy, dot, 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 and then in a like fine print, as I have done. According to Revelation 20, there will come a future day when God will judge the world again. But it won't be with a flood. It will instead be with fire. One more observation before we transition to chapter 9. God also promises, and this is something really fascinating, that while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. Now what makes this fascinating is that we have no mention of these things in Genesis until this moment. No evidence of these things in this pre-Diluvian, pre-flood world. It, it seems that now after the flood, like the whole constitution of how the earth operates, how it functions, now changes. It, it's going to operate in a new manner, with a new rhythm. And God is promising that this rhythm would not be broken until the final judgment. Chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herb. Now, in addition to the wind patterns, the weather cycles, these things not described before the flood, we also find here what it seems to be a new dynamic between man and the rest of the animal kingdom. Because from this text, man's diet now would be carnivorous. Man is given the mandate that he can eat meat. To make it fair, God, we're told, places a healthy fear and dread of humanity within the animals. Like beforehand, Bambi and man are good buds. There's no fear before the flood. But now afterwards, I mean, Bambi comes up and just my 12 gauge, pa-pow. Sorry, Bambi. Like that's just not fair. There's a fear now in Bambi that, oh man, there's a hunter. I'm gonna run. You know, like, I, I, just, I had some fun with this this week. Can you imagine that moment? Because this didn't exist before the flood, and it doesn't seem to have existed in the ark, right? I mean, they're all getting along. So they get off the boat, 
Everyone's just kind of hanging out. It's normal. God's given some directives, right, to Noah. And, and, and God's like, hey, Noah, you can eat meat now. And Noah's like, sweet. That's awesome. And then Noah's like, God's like, but I'm going to put a dread of you in the animals. And so there's this moment where the cow looks at Noah, and Noah looks at the cow, and the cow's like, oh, we ain't friends anymore. Because Noah's seeing steak. I mean, this the whole dynamics change, and I can see in that moment, everyone looks at Noah, Noah looks at everyone else, and it's like, boom, they just all start taking off because Noah is hungry, right? He's ready to eat some meat. Now understand, right up front, it is well within your right to share the dietary proclivities of a rabbit by being vegan or vegetarian because you either believe it's healthier or you're protesting the unethical treatment of animals. That's well within your right. Go for it. Knock yourself out. However, I do need to say that it's wrong for you to think that you're better than someone who eats meat because God says here, every moving thing that lives, that includes shrimp, lobster, I just keep talking, you guys are going to leave and go to lunch. Shall be for food, even as the green herb. Personally, just speaking personally, I'm not all that worried that eating steak and bacon might shave off 10 years from my life. In my case, I can't imagine that, that my years between 85 and 95 were going to be good anyway. Verse 4. Hey, I might die young, that's fine. But the steak was good. Verse 4, there's a caveat, right? But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This phrase, with its life, is the Hebrew word nefesh, which is a feminine noun that derives from the verb, Hebrew verb, nefesh, meaning to take breath. Though the word is translated in Scripture as soul 475 times in the Old Testament, it's also translated as life or living creature 117 times, which is kind of a disparity, but you should note that every time the word is used for an animal in the Old Testament, it's translated by Hebrew scholars as living creature and not soul. According to Strong's definition legend, the word nefesh literally means a breathing creature and in context spoke of an animal's vitality. And, and just the next verse, by the way, you, you'll find the word lifeblood. It's actually the, the two Hebrew words we find here. Dam, blood, nefesh, life, lifeblood. Now, while the Jews believe that it is not kosher to eat anything with blood in it, if you go to Israel and you order a steak, it's terrible. As they say, it's terrible because we kill, we kill the cow twice. That's what they say. They kill it once, and then they, when they cook it, they kill it again. There are also Christians, right, that, that kind of make this argument that you're not allowed to eat anything but well-done steak. you got to get the blood out of it. But here's the problem. I don't believe that's what this verse is communicating. For example, the King James Version translates this verse as this. But flesh, 
which is the word basar, meaning body, but body, with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Like it would appear that God is not prohibiting eating the meat of a dead animal that still has blood in it, such as like a a medium rare steak. Instead, it seems the text is providing a prohibition on eating an animal that's still living. Though man can now eat of every living thing, because of the sanctity of life, what's God saying? You need to kill the animal first. Because if you don't, that's torture. That's cruel. There's something wrong with it. Make sure it's dead. Now, you might like things raw. Kill it. Then eat it. Drop the lobster in the pot of boiling oil or water. Kill what you eat first. And keep in mind this this idea of the sanctity of life that context, it seems to fit seamlessly in what comes next, this instituting of capital punishment. For verse 5, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. It's interesting that while God places the fear of man within the animals, these verses are designed to place the fear of God in the life of man. Because man is created in the image of God, the act of taking a human life, according to this passage, is a capital offense to be administered out by the men who make up that society. The passage is clear. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Now, in a profound way, we find here kind of another example of something weird happening. God instituting a law before instituting the law. At its core, what's being defined here is a basic concept of human justice. You know, you might have heard the saying. I think it was Gandhi. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And yet, how rarely is that the case? You see, when you get harmed, when someone commits a crime against you, your natural inclination is not to to get back evenly, is it? It's not, oh, you took an eye, I'm going to take your eye. No, it's I'm going to take your eye, your other eye, I'm going to cut your nose off, I'm going to kick you in the gut. Like, Like our reaction naturally is not an eye for an eye. It's, I not only want to get back evenly, but because you caused me harm and I was innocent, I want to get back evenly and a little more to feel like things are easy here. Like our natural inclination for justice is rarely just. You see, justice can be defined as a person getting what they deserve. True justice is a punishment that's measured, it's calculated, It's a punishment that's in proportion to the crime itself. This is why when God says that the only just repercussion when a person's life is taken by another is for the rest of society to have the responsibility to act for the victim to then take the life 
uh, of the one who committed the crime. Now, those who argue against the death penalty, they claim the moral high ground of compassion, but I would often ask the compassion of who? Most often it's the compassion of the murderer. Like they claim that a life sentence is more just, a more just form of punishment without ever considering the victim whose life was taken, whose life can never be given back. Like justice demands death with anything less being God's, from God's estimation, unjust. Now, in our country, then you have to start talking about uh, the justice that actually exists within our justice system. I think that's an honest argument. But when it comes to, to, to situations where you know it's completely guilty, the, the notion, I don't think it's just for me to have to pay for you to live the rest of your life. With cable. Like, that's not just for me. Those are my tax dollars. I know there's different sides of the argument, but understand this. Within this core concept of justice, there are three other reasons, and we'll just go through them very quickly, why God institutes the death penalty here. One, the text is clear to emphasize the reality that all human life is sacred because we've been created in the image and likeness of God. Two, to establish a deterrent to those who commit murder. Thirdly, to eliminate from society people who are likely to be recidivists, people who are likely to kill again. Now, I'll say all that with one caveat. It's interesting that we have a long list of people in Scripture, right, used by God in incredible ways, who committed murder, don't we? From Moses to King David to the Apostle Paul, right? And yet, there is still a place for mercy and a place for compassion even within justice. Well, very quickly, God spoke to Noah, to his sons, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the beasts of the earth, with you all that goes out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. As with all of God's agreements with man, what we call here the Noahic covenant, it was completely monopolistic. It was one-sided. Like the, the terms and the fulfillment of those terms were completely dependent on whom? God. Not man, not living creatures. Why? Because God knew the heart of man. God promises here to never again destroy the earth with a flood, which is further evidence that this flood was not regional, but global. Why? Well, we see localized floods occur all the time. Now, also, according to our text, the rainbow, this super cool phenomenon 
when rain refracts light in such a way that we can see this spectrum of color. The rainbow was created by God, not existing before the flood, it didn't rain, now existing afterwards, specifically to be a sign of this covenant. What's interesting is that the rainbow was to be a reminder to whom? Specifically to God of his covenant. Not necessarily to act as a reminder to us, though it does. In a sense, God is saying, when you're looking up, I'll be looking down, and I will remember my covenant. Understand the rainbow. It is a symbol of God's grace and God's mercy. As the world grows more and more wicked, in his mercy, God is withholding judgment. He's holding off judgment. Why? So that by his grace, man might have more time to repent and accept the offer of salvation given by his son, Jesus. It's with this in mind that I'm personally insulted by the brazen and deeply offensive idea that this biblical symbol of God's grace has been hijacked by Gilbert Baker and used to instead celebrate sexual freedom from God's ideals and has become a universal symbol of the homosexual lifestyle. You know, it's interesting that he didn't choose the star and crescent of Islam and instead borrowed a uniquely Christian emblem that dates back 5,000 years. It offends me. That said, I do believe that when God looks down and sees that rainbow flag, he's still reminded of his mercy and his grace and his covenant. Christian, the reality is that when you see that flag, the rainbow, you should not be filled with a sense of moral superiority, hate, or even condescension. Instead, you should be reminded of God's covenant a covenant to withhold judgment so that by his incredible mercy, his amazing grace, and his abundant love, all men and women, no matter what they've done, might come to Jesus and be restored, be made new. There you have it. New birth, its results. Baptism, the importance on waiting on the Lord before we act. Offerings to God, weather cycles and seasons, eating meat and the controversy of blood, capital punishment and the rainbow as a sign of God's covenant. Told you we were going to be all over the place, but hopefully some of those nuggets the Lord was able to use to speak to you. So, Father, Lord, we ask that...